Let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. Let my plea come before you. Deliver me according to your word. My lips will pour forth praise, for you teach me your statutes. My tongue will sing of your word, for all your commandments are right. Let your right hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Let my soul live and praise you, and let your rules help me. I've gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. Those are verses 169 to 176 of Psalm 119, verses 145 through 176 of which are the psalm appointed for today, Wednesday, February the 23rd, 2021, 22. (laughs) You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being with us today. We're looking at, continuing our look at the um, story of Ruth in chapter 2 of that book, the first 13 verses, and then uh, the the epistle would be 2 Corinthians 1, verse 23 through chapter 2, verse 17, and then Matthew's Gospel, uh, chapter 5, verses 21 to 26, this is Sermon on the Mount, it's a portion of that. So, as you remember the story of Ruth, that, that Ruth is a Moabite woman who has uh, married an Israelite man, and, and he and his brother and his father died while they were in Moab, and now they have come back to Bethlehem, where the family was originally from. They've come back there after the famine that had driven them away, uh, or caused them to go away. It didn't drive them away. They chose. Um, now they've come back. She and her mother-in-law have come back, and so... <clears throat> they've, they've come back and, and received kind of a, a welcome from the people, but it seems that nobody's really providing for them. Now, there could be a reason for that. Partially, they abandoned <laughs> the people in a time of need. So Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. It's, it, it's just a detail provided at the beginning of the story because what you're going to see in a minute is is that, that they're, it, it's sort of unconnected from what comes next, but we're but but we're introduced to Boaz here as a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, which would tend to mean that he was um, he, he maybe had stepped up into the leadership vacuum that Elimelech had created when he took his family and went to Moab. And Ruth the Moabite, as I told you yesterday, that you see that refrain kind of repeated along the way. It's, it, we're, it's being drilled into us to remember that that she's a child of Moab. And it's important because typically the um, Israelites are forbidden to marry Moabite women. And it's interesting because then ultimately because of Ruth, they, they reinterpret, let's say, the prohibition that's in Scripture about marrying the Moabites because they refuse to give any aid and comfort to the people when they came out of Egypt. And so the... Um, the, they've reinterpreted the commandment to mean, oh, it must only mean then that you're not allowed to marry, uh, that, a, that a, uh, an Israelite woman is not a mar- allowed to marry a Moabite man. So she, Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. Now, if you were gleaning in a field, what it typically meant was is that you were poor. You were vulnerable because the the laws of Israel required them to to not reap the corners of a field. There was a, there's a certain percentage of the corner of any field that you're not allowed to reap because that's to be left for those who are struggling financially. But all, also, there are a couple of other things that that you can't do. You can't go back and do it twice. So if you drop, miss whatever something on the way, if you miss something on the way, then you can't go back and get it. Um, if 
you drop things and they don't get into the sheaves, then those things are also available for the uh, people who are gleaning in the fields. And so, like I said, it would it would it would it would tend to indicate that you were poor and that therefore you were vulnerable. And what we have here are two widows. So the, the widows being Naomi and Ruth. And so they're financially vulnerable because they've, they've lost the land that, um, that was in the ancestral land of Elimelech had been lost. And so now they've, they've, they've come back and they don't have the, the means to redeem it. So she's forced to do this gleaning work. And, Jewish legend has it actually, by the way, just so you'll know, um, that Ruth was um, a princess. Her father was the king of Moab. That's the way that they, what they believe. And so it would be quite a come down, let's say, for her to, to have left Moab and come back to Bethlehem and now be gleaning in the field um, the way she is. So, but she's, she's doing what makes sense and the right thing to do. So, she, Naomi, said, go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to that part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And we've already been told that once. And what it means is it's the, that the clan would be a smaller subgroup of the people of Judah. So this would be the, so the, the bigger, bigger group would be Judah. The smaller group would be the clan that Elimelech was from. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. So he came out from Bethlehem to where they were reaping. And he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? He, he noticed uh, Ruth. And, and so the servant who was in charge of the reapers said, She's the young Moabite woman who came back from, with Naomi from the country of Moab. I mean, it's just there's piling up this, this identification of Ruth as a Moabite woman who came from Moab, by the way. I mean, you wouldn't maybe necessarily have, have uh, assumed that. So that, that little detail's added, too. And she said, she said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she's continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. And so she's, she's been working the entire time. She's, she's not being a princess, let's say. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. She, he's taking care of Ruth. He's making sure that she's provided for, but also that she's safe, because he says, Let your eyes be on the field they're reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And so the, uh, because of that vulnerability, and she would probably have been a beautiful woman as well, and but because of the vulnerability, he's been especially clear with his men to leave her alone. And when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. So they're going to provide for her. Um, Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? It's interesting that she doesn't um, identify herself specifically as a Moabites. But Boaz answered her, All that you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. So what he's saying is, is that I've heard all about you and and I'm truly impressed with everything about you. The way you've taken care of your mother-in-law and the way that you have left everything behind. Again, you got that same language from Genesis 2.24 where a man shall leave his um, father and mother and then cleave to his wife. And he says, you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. And so, so she's being married to the people of God. 
the Lord repay you for what you've done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. That idea will come back up later uh, when basically she says, yep, the Lord spreads his wings over the people and protects them, and sometimes he does it through other people. <laughs> is the way that it's going to end up playing out. Then she said, I've found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, even though I'm not one of your servants. And kindness is sort of the one thing that the, the Israelites looked at the Moabites and said they don't have any kindness, or they have what can sometimes be termed as a broken kindness for others. And so they wouldn't receive the people of Israel, even though ultimately they're kin, because it's Lot, who is Abraham's nephew. So it, that, that line refused to welcome them, refused to provide for them in any way as they uh, came out of Egypt. And so kindness is not something that would be um, typical in Moabite society, but it's, it's intended to be one of the highest virtues in Israelite society. In the gospel lesson today, Jesus says, you've heard it said that uh, it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Well, he's just quoting from the Ten Commandments, right? You, you shall not murder, do no murder. He said, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. And, and so that's the, the way that we are intended to live is to love one another. And so one of the things that we, I think, have to be very careful about, and I've seen people do this very thing, is allowing our anger with a brother or sister to run so far ahead that they no longer exist in any real way to us and, and that we our, our desire is for harm for them. And that's a problem. It's a real problem. And Jesus says here it's tantamount to murder to say things and do things this way. He said, so if you're offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. This is not when you've got a problem with your brother. It's when your brother has a problem with you and, and, and the onus is on you to go and to go to your brother and, and confess and to deal with the division that exists there. It could be that it's a, um, it's just a, a, a misunderstanding because your brother, you know, certainly I've had people be upset with me over misunderstandings. Uh, and I've certainly been upset with other people because of misunderstandings. And so it, it could be either way. But the, the paramount thing Jesus says to do is even if you're leaving your, if you're bringing an offering to the altar, it, you're not going to be able to get reconciled to God through that offering until you're reconciled with your brother. And, and he says this again and again through Scripture. And so here he says, go, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. It's more acceptable to God for you to wait and delay the sacrifice to him uh, if, as long as you're pursuing reconciliation with anybody who has anything against you. He says, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. And truly I say to you, you'll never get out until you've paid the last penny. And, and Paul speaks about that in Corinthians as well, is saying that it's wrong for us to go to law, courts of law with one another. Now, sometimes those things are, are not easily worked out. I mean, certainly I used to do litigation support work, and one of the things that you could see was these sort of 
the situation was such that, that the tensions and the emotions were so high that there was no possibility of a settlement, even though it would be easy to craft a settlement that would work. And, and you know, you could get a pretty good idea about what the judge was likely to do, and you could propose that. But tensions and emotions were so high because it was the interpersonal conflict now. And, and somebody had to be right, somebody had to be wrong, and so compromise wasn't something anybody could talk about. And so they have to go to court for a judge to decide things when they could have and should have been able to do it on their own. But but because of this this personal issue, they couldn't come together and even begin to talk to one another about things. And so it's, it's, we have to be careful always to remember Paul's injunction that, that we don't fight against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers. And so that that's the way to continue to be able to love somebody, even when you're in, in some sort of conflict with them, is to remember that what's at stake here is actually more than that. And it's not the interpersonal battle that needs to be dealt with. It's the battle on the larger cosmic scale that's being fought out. And the way that we do that then says something about relationships in the church versus relationships in the world. So Jesus is, is very clear here about the way that we're to deal with one another and we're to deal with one another in love. We're to believe and expect and hope for the best um, from our brothers and sisters. Paul, remember, is, is fussing at the Corinthian church because apparently they, they've basically been saying, well, you know, Paul just is a people pleaser because he said he was coming back to see us, but he didn't come back to see us. And so he, here he is defending that still. And you, and you can hear the, there are some defensive things that he's going to say along the way as well, and I'll point those out when we get to them, that, that he's clearly perturbed with these other people who have come in and begun to preach a different gospel of some sort, and it's a Judaizing gospel typically. He said, I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming to Corinth, not that we should lord it over your faith, but we work with you for our joy, for you stand firm in your faith. So what he, what he said was, is it's a good thing that I didn't come because I didn't want to come. He's going to say this in a minute. I didn't, I didn't come, didn't want to come and have to get up in your faces and confront you about things. And so I sent you the letter instead so that you could deal with the problem. He said, we, we just are there to work with you and, and support you in your faith. He says, I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad, but the one whom I have pained? And it's going to be uncomfortable for both of us. And I wrote as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much effect, affliction and anguish of heart with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. He says, so the pain that I'm feeling has to do everything in the world to do with, with rectifying a situation. And I didn't want to come and have an unpleasant visit with you. I love you. And I wanted to, to come and bring you a word of comfort and encouragement, not a word of rebuke. And so I wrote the letter instead so that, so that I could see that you know how to deal with these things. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he's caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. When somebody repents and, and comes back, they, they receive the rebuke of the church, which is the Matthew 18 thing, is the, how, do you, how do you confront interpersonal sin in the church? First, you go to the person who has sinned against you, and then if they won't hear that, then you take somebody else, and then you take the church. So, so you, you're 
you're, there's a progressive sort of um, a way of dealing with discipline in the church. And if, you, and if your brother repents, then Paul's saying, turn and forgive him. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you're obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I've forgiven, if I've forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we're not ignorant of his designs. And so he puts it back into that court of fight the spiritual battle. So don't, don't kick this person out of the fellowship and then have nothing to do with them. No, if you, if you confront them in their sin and they'll repent of their sin, then restore them. Restore them the right way. Restore them fully. And, and he's saying that, that the problem is, is that Satan wants to divide us. And what I'm trying to do is to, to make sure that we're not divided over these things. But also, in addition to not wanting division, Paul also doesn't want one other thing, and that is for sin to go unchecked and undisciplined in the church. And so it's important that both those things happen, that discipline take place, that they deal with sin ruthlessly in their midst, and then that they, that they reconcile with the one who sinned so long as they repent. He says, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I didn't find my brother Titus there. So I left, I took leave of them and went to, on to Macedonia. So what he's doing is he, he's explaining why he didn't come back to them. He says, the Lord did this. My spirit wasn't right because I didn't see Titus, and so I went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. So no matter where we go, we're carrying him with us, and the gospel's being preached, and the spirit's with us in the same way that, it, that it, he was with the people in the wilderness. The spirit is with us when we go. Because we take him wherever we go. And so the, the, there's a triumphal procession wherever we go because we go under the banner of Christ. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. So one way or another, we carry him with us and we carry the aroma of Christ with us. And to, so to those who are are, are destined to life, then it's a pleasing and sweet aroma. And for those who are rejecting him, then it's, it's the odor of the stench of death is what we have. So who is sufficient for these things? We're not, like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. And that's one of those places where I'm telling you that he is being defensive. That last sentence there, we're not like so many peddlers of God's word, that he, he's going to get really upset in a little while and explain what that's about because he's really angry with these people who have come in and attempted to steal the hearts and the minds of the people in the church at Corinth and Paul is going to have none of that he said I'm not doing this for gain I'm doing it because of the love of Christ and because I want to see the gospel and the kingdom expand in all these places and so Paul's going to these Gentiles in the same way that Ruth this Gentile from Moab comes into the covenant because she smelled the pleasing aroma of God even in the midst of some really rough circumstances for the family of Elimelech and here she's beginning to taste the sweetness of God in the person of Boaz who provides for her and is kind to her.